Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. Today, February 15th, 2023, we discuss the Respect for Marriage Act and religious liberty. Are they at odds or unaffected? My name is Kayla Kleist, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's program, as the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. In the interest of time, we'll keep our introductions brief, but if you'd like to know more about any of our panelists, you're welcome to access their full impressive bios at fedsoc.org. Today, we are fortunate to have with us as our moderator, Matt Clark, who is the president of the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty, a legal arm of the Alabama Policy Institute, where he engages in both direct litigation and amicus advocacy. Prior to coming to ACLL, he served as an attorney for the Foundation for Moral Law in Montgomery for five years, from 2016 to 2021. And prior to working at Moral Law, Mr. Clark serves as staff attorney in the Alabama Supreme Court. I'll leave it to him to introduce the rest of our panel. One last note throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them via the question and answer feature so that our speakers will have access to them before we get to that portion of today's webinar. With that, thank you all for being with us today. Mr. Clark, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Kayla. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Glad to have you with us. And I'm excited about our panel of experts that we have here today. Um, as you probably know, at the end of last year, uh, Congress passed uh, the Respect for uh, Respect for Marriage Act uh, concerning same-sex marriage. And the question that many of us have right now is, is this going to have negative implications for religious liberty or not? So to discuss uh, both sides of that issue today, we have with us Professor Carl Esbeck, who's a professor uh, at uh, the University University of Missouri. And we also have with us Mr. Greg Baylor, who is a senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom. So gentlemen, thank you for being with us. I'm honored to have you here. And without further ado, let's go ahead and dive in. So we're going to open up with Professor Esbeck uh, with his opening remarks. And then after that, we'll give Greg a chance to, to talk and then we'll take it from there. So Professor Esbeck, please take it away. Uh, thank you, Matt. And uh, good afternoon to the East Coast and good morning to our other uh, three time zones. I'm going to begin with uh, saying uh, 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 several words, actually, about how this legislation came about, because it's pretty unusual. We've got uh, LGBTQ and religious liberty in the same bill. That's certainly unusual, and maybe that's a, a modest way to put it. I'm going to use the acronym RMA, so I hope that doesn't uh, throw people off, uh, Respect for Marriage Act. <clears throat> so this came about as a result of the, uh, the Dobbs opinion, which of course overruled Roe versus Wade uh, in early June of last year. <clears throat> and um, there was uh, quite an uproar. In fact, the uproar even started because of the leak of the Dobbs opinion, not its uh, actual handing down. And um, part of the uproar was due to a concurring opinion by Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas was in the five justice uh, majority opinion, but he wrote separately alone. And um, among other things, he suggested that the court ought to completely review and eventually overrule all of its substantive due process case cases or what uh, some call fundamental rights 
uh, jurisprudence under the due process clause. And he specifically called out a, a few examples like Griswold versus Connecticut, but he also called out a Bergefeld decided in 2015, which of course declared that there was a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Well, that caused uh, concern on the LBGTQ side for marriages, marriages that had already been entered into based upon the Obergefeld um, opinion. And, um, uh, you know, we, we can debate whether the prospect of overruling Obergefeld is really uh, very uh, likely, but I would, and, and personally, I said at the time, and I'll say now, I think it unlikely, but um, I would say that those who were concerned about it were genuine in their concern. So it led to the introduction of the RMA first in the House, and it quickly passed the House of Representatives in June. So it really just took five or six weeks after the Dobbs opinion came down before the House had a bill that would protect, among other things, uh, marriage equality. And what was, not only was it quick, but I, I think what was interesting was that 40 or 50 Republicans voted for the bill. That, that caught uh, people's attention. So of course, now it goes over to the Senate side where normally legislation of this would be dead on arrival. And several people thought this one was dead on arrival as well. But a few senators on a pretty low key bipartisan basis, um, uh, both parties, uh, in particular, I'll mention Susan Collins, a, a Republican from Maine, and um, uh, 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 Rob Portman, a Republican from Ohio, uh, expressed a good deal of interest in trying to uh, modify the bill. Uh, the bill was entirely one-sided as it came over from the House. It was entirely about marriage equality. But to leaven into the bill um, protections for religious liberty and hence see if we couldn't get 60 votes in the Senate and hence break the uh, the filibuster and pass a bill, but a bill that was more balanced with religious liberty in it. And uh, so, so there was a pretty quiet negotiations as to what uh, sort of right of center religious liberty folks and those in sympathy with them uh, what they would need in order to support the bill and tell uh, moderate Republicans in the Senate that that they should vote for the bill. Um, and I, I should say, by way of disclosure, um, I was part of a law professor's letter, uh, which came out in the kind of late in this process because we had available to us uh, the uh, prospective religious liberty provisions that uh, said that the religious liberty provisions uh, were important and with worthwhile uh, uh, the, the Senate consider on, on their merits. So um, 
on, uh, let's see, November 17th, then, uh, this came up on a test vote to see if they had enough Republicans to break the filibuster. And it was uh, 62 to 36. So there were 12 Republicans, uh, along with 50 Democrats, voting for uh, this test. So that indicated that that the filibuster uh, uh, could be broken. And uh, while there were attempts uh, by people farther right of center uh, to eat into that uh, uh, Republican 12 votes, uh, the, the Republicans um, stayed with their original votes. And eventually uh, the bill did pass the Senate with religious liberty provisions that we're gonna get to pretty quickly. Uh, then it went over to the House. The House, of course, passed it and uh, it went to the White House. So far as I know, the White House uh, had nothing to do uh, with the passage in the Senate whatsoever. And of course, it was the Senate which really determined whether we would have a bill. All right. So uh, I say all that because the thing that the LBGT community wanted most was uh, that their marriages be protected if Obergefell was reversed by the Supreme Court. So keep that in mind. Then on the religious liberty side, while there was three or four things of concern, the primary or point thing of concern had to do with the Bob Jones University case from the early 1980s. And that was whether their tax exempt status or 501c3 uh, tax exempt status was in jeopardy because uh, they were of traditional religious theology and therefore opposed same sex marriage. What really set this off was uh, the Obama Solicitor General Donald uh, Verrilli. In the oral argument of Obergefell, he was asked by Justice Alito, "You know, if we rule your way and find it a, a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, isn't that under Bob Jones going to put at jeopardy the um, for public policy reasons uh, the re the religious organizations that hold traditional beliefs?" the historic beliefs as to marriage, gonna put their um, tax exempt status at jeopardy. And, uh, and he said, well, it's certainly gonna be an issue. It's certainly gonna be an issue. So uh, that caused a, a bit of an uproar, or you might say a panic in some conservative circles. And again, you can debate whether uh, uh, they should have panicked or not, or whether there's any likely prospect of, uh, of religious groups uh, being tripped up by a Bob Jones University uh, ruling. But again, you can certainly say that their concern was genuine. And so uh, the, a point issue or point number one was uh, their tax exempt status. All right. So what we have here is, is uh, a bill that's reflective of cultural pluralism. So um, now I'm going to the bill. And for those of you who downloaded the bill or otherwise uh, have it, you might want to put um, the bill in front of you. It's very short. And um, there are sort of three positives for marriage equality, and I'll unpack each each of those very briefly. And there are three positives for religious liberty. 
Now, notice I'm calling these positives, not advances, because sometimes just to maintain the status quo is a positive. I mean, if you're on the marriage equality side, to maintain the status quo, even in the face of Obergefell being reversed, is a positive. And maintaining the status quo from their side means getting congressional legislation, which will protect same sex marriage in the event that Obergefell is later reversed. So section three of the RMA is the first positive and all it does, um, I mean, it's a simple provision. That's all I mean by all. It repeals section two of DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, which was passed uh, back in the Bill Clinton presidency. And uh, what section two of DOMA said, was that a state may refuse full faith and credit to uh, the marriage of a, uh, that was consummated in a sister state if they oppose same-sex marriages. So that section is now repealed as a result of RMA. Now, you, you could brush this aside as well as just cleaning up the, U, the uh, U.S. code because that section was no longer enforceable because of Obergefell. But remember, the premise here is what if Obergefell is reversed? So if Obergefell is reversed, then Section 2 would have come back into uh, positive law, but it's now uh, now uh, repealed. Uh, the uh, Section 3 of DOMA was struck down in United States versus Windsor. That was a uh, 2013 case. What Section 3 held or provided was for a federal definition of marriage, which was uh, the marriage that the federal government would honor was a marriage only between one man and one woman. That was struck down in Windsor. All right, so now the second positive, if you will, for marriage equality is in section four of the RMA. And it says that a state must give full faith and credit to marriages that are valid in a sister state, or at least it can't turn away full faith and credit to those marriages on the basis of race, national origin, ethnicity, or sex. Of course, sex uh, it gets to the, the same sex marriage element. And in order to back that up, and I should say the congressional authority uh, for passing uh, section four of the RMA would be the full faith and credit clause itself. Um, to back up section four, there's two provisions. There's a private cause of action against uh, state or local officials acting under color of state law, or the U.S. Attorney General is given a cause of action to enforce section four of the RMA. Now, it already exists once Obergefell came down, um, a private cause of action under 42 USC 1983, because that provides a civil rights remedy for a violation of a constitutional right here, the constitutional right declared in Obergefell. And so we already know what a private cause of action looks like for, in this case, equity and for even for damages, if you can overcome qualified immunity. 
but it has to be uh, against a state actor or under color of state law. Uh, the U.S. Attorney General's uh, cause of action, of course, is new and uh, new to the RMA. All right. And the third sort of positive for marriage equality is under Section 5. So the first one, Section 3, second one, Section 4, the third one under Section 5 of the RMA. And what it says is when the federal government extends a benefit or an accommodation or a license, and marriage or the status of a marriage is part of that benefit calculation. In other words, uh, you get the benefit if you're married or you get the benefit if you're not married, you're single and so on. So the federal government, in order to apply its legislation like Social Security, sometimes it often matters quite a lot whether the person is married or not. Uh, but, you know, their their benefits are higher if they're married uh, and so on. Same thing with uh, income tax law or uh, a state law, federal state law. So if the federal government needs to make a determination as to whether the person claiming a benefit that's in front of them, uh, what their marital status is, uh, Section 5 of the RMA instructs uh, that you look to the state law where the marriage took place. All right. Um, now, to the positives for religious liberty. Um, and these uh, are, are, I think, a little more uh, difficult to explain. So first one, I'm going to uh, lump together Section 6A of the RMA and Section 7A of the RMA. They're both rules of construction. So right there, uh, you're, you're not dealing with a new substantive right. Rather, you're dealing with instructions to a judge or to the attorney interpreting this law for your client, how to construe the RMA. So Section 6A says that in construing the RMA, you're not to find that any provision protecting religious liberty uh, is diminished or abrogated. Any, and I should say any protection of religious liberty in federal law. So, um, so it's uh, very broad. Um, and the, the sort of things that were talked about when that provision was uh, put into the um, Senate amendment uh, was things like, well, you, you can't read the RMA as um, uh, overriding the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But maybe a little bit more subtle, for example, you can't read the RMA as somehow abrogating uh, religious exemptions in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. For example, there's very valuable uh, religious exemptions for religious employers when it comes to employment discrimination and so on. Section 7A is also a rule of construction, and it ties back, I, it doesn't say this, but I see it or understand it as in 
in part tying back with Section 5. You recall Section 5 instructs the federal government when it needs a definition of marriage to look to the definition of marriage in the state where the marriage took place. Well, here in Section 7A, it's saying by way of construction that um, the the uh, the benefits when looking to um, federal benefits or accommodations, um, you're to look to the definition of marriage in the state where the marriage took place, but that's only when uh, marriage is part of the equation. There are all kinds of federal benefits and accommodations and um, uh, guarantees that are unrelated to marriage. And uh, 7A is saying that um, as a matter of construction, the RMA leaves those untouched. So these two rules of construction, they somewhat overlap, but not entirely. And the way I kind of think about it is that 6A is that religious liberty is not diminished, but 7A is that certain federal benefits are not to be diminished. All right, the second sort of positive has to do with 6B. I think this is the most peculiar provision and I'm told it was added late um, at, at uh, the suggestion of uh, Senator Sinema um, from Arizona. And it creates a, a new substantive right, albeit a, a narrow one. It's for religious nonprofits only. And it says that uh, they have a right to refuse uh, the celebration or uh, simply to be a host of the officiation or uh, solemnization of a marriage. So, if you're a nonprofit religious organization and um, and you don't want to have a same-sex marriage take place in your church or other facility, uh, here's a substantive right to say no to that. Um, same thing about being a venue for the celebration of a marriage, um, uh, like uh, the marriage uh, dinner or rehearsal dinner or something of that sort, which would be celebrating uh, the marriage that has just taken place or is about to take place. So, for example, if um, if you're a religious uh, university or college and you have a chapel, and uh, you get requests from time to time uh, for students or alums to use the chapel for a wedding. Uh, under this particular provisions, again, assuming you're a religious nonprofit, you could turn away use of the chapel because of a marriage uh, that you had a religious objection to or a same-sex marriage. All right, and then the third positive has to do with section two of the RMA. The section two has findings. And there are two aspects to the findings which are of interest to religious liberty. Uh, the second finding uh, is that there are diverse views 
concerning gender when it comes to marriage. In other words, <laughs> their diverse views are that you uh, support or oppose same-sex marriages. And um, that these diverse views are held by reasonable, sincere people. And uh, they are decent. Uh, they are, uh, those people hold premises which are decent, honorable, and religious. So this would be useful uh, in the Bob Jones situation, kind of situation where the IRS is supposed to declare public policy. And when the Congress of the United States, including 50 Democrats are saying that uh, uh, a premises or decent, honorable religious premises are, are uh, acceptable and reasonable, um, uh, for the IRS to make a finding to the contrary uh, would, would be made more difficult. And the other aspect is that um, this also talks about interracial marriage and the, uh, the talk about uh, reasonable and honorable uh, uh, positions are as to gender in marriage, but not as to race in marriage. And what this is getting at is there's a, a, a common argument by the LGBT side that there's a moral equivalence between racism and um, discrimination against uh, same-sex marriages. And this uh, finding is contrary to that, um, uh, sort of uh, making the moral equivalency of that. All right, then, um, so that's the sort of third of, uh, uh, of the uh, findings. And um, Mr. Respect, I'm sorry to uh, jump yeah. in here. We got to go to Greg in about another minute or two. So sure. just give you a heads up. Go ahead. All right. Why don't we, why don't I pass the mic to, to Greg right now? All right. Sounds good. Thank you. That was an excellent overview of uh, the Respect for Marriage Act. So Mr. Baylor, you're up. Well, thank you. Thanks uh, to the Federalist Society for inviting me for to participate in this discussion. And thank you, Matt, for uh, moderating us and, uh, I'm grateful to be part of this discussion with Professor Espect, who is an old friend and a mentor of mine and um, uh, someone I admire deeply. Um, I, I thank you, uh, Professor, for your uh, overview of what uh, the bill does. However, I have to point out right at the beginning that we have an irreconcilable difference that I'm just not going to budge on. And that is that it's the RFMA. Not the RMA, I'm no, just kidding, not a big deal, but uh, I will refer to it as the RFMA. Um, so uh, what are the concerns that uh, my organization and a lot of our allies have about the RFMA? Well, the first, the first concern we have is that the bill isn't really necessary. And I was happy to see Professor Esbeck uh, agree that the likelihood of Obergefell being overruled is, uh, is vanishingly small. Um, and I wanted to flesh that out just a tiny bit. Um, you know, think about the response to Roe versus Wade. Uh, it never captured the assent of the majority of the American people, at least in the form that it was written in. And there, there was an immediate effort to try to overrule Roe versus Wade. States passed dozens of statutes designed to test 
uh, Roe versus Wade and potentially set up a circumstance in which the Supreme Court can reconsider it. And compare that to what has happened in the wake of the Obergefell case. I can't, I'm not aware of any state that has said, let's pass some legislation designed to put Obergefell back before the court. Um, and also think about who raised the prospect of revisiting substantive due process precedents. One out of nine justices and one out of the five majority. So, and finally, um, you know, Justice Breyer, who was commenting on the possibility of Obergefell being overruled at uh, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government said he didn't think there was any real possibility that that would happen. Um, I also think that the inclusion of race and national origin in the bill uh, demonstrates that I don't think this was an entirely about reasonable fears of Obergefell being overruled. Um, they, they raised the prospect the Supreme Court was going to overrule Loving versus Virginia in which the Supreme Court said that laws preventing the marriage of people from different races was unconstitutional. And no one thinks that's going to happen in the United States. And I'd be surprised if we ever get to a place where it does. So I think the bill was unnecessary. Second, uh, it does create a litigation and liability risk for non-governmental organizations, including religious organizations. Uh, Professor Espec said that uh, the, that the provision, a provision of the RFMA says, he said that no state shall refuse to give full faith and credit to a same-sex marriage. The language of the of the of the act is that no one acting under color of state law may refuse to give full faith and credit to a same-sex marriage, and that distinction is incredibly important. Um, it's a technical phrase acting under color of state law, but it has real meaning and real impact in real life. Uh, more specifically, multiple kinds of non-governmental organizations have deemed to be state actors, have deemed to be acting under color of state law. And of course, you know, the tests for determining whether someone is a state actor, a non-governmental entity is a state actor, are complicated, fact-specific, subjective. And I think that's part of the problem, right, is if you don't have a clear test, the risk that you're going to face at least litigation, if not liability, for declining to recognize a same-sex marriage is uh, is itself a, a problem. And indeed, the process can be the punishment, the process of being sued, even if one prevails in the case at the end of the day, can itself be a problem and cause lots of organizations to change their views and their practices, and certainly their practices, regarding this. The best example, of course, is foster and adoption placement agencies. Um, I think that they're at particular risk, uh, one, because they're the kinds of non-governmental organizations that are deemed to be state actors because of the close working relationship that they obviously have with uh, the government. Obviously, they're working together to place kids. Kids are in custody of the state and all of that. So we have particular concern, and, and the casebooks have in them examples of nonprofit entities, not you know, religious ones, including foster placement and adoption placement agencies being deemed to be state actors. So we're concerned um, about that. Um, another thing we're concerned about is tax-exempt status. Uh, the, the bill 
establishes, I think, a national policy in favor of same-sex marriage and by extension against uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And the way the IRS works when it's determining whether a, uh, a nonprofit organization is entitled to nonprofit status is to ask whether it's charitable. And when it asks whether it's charitable, it looks to the common law uh, of uh, charitable organizations and it discerns whether the nonprofit is acting inconsistently with a national policy. And of course, that was how Bob Jones University lost its tax exempt status. Titles, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 established a firm national policy against racial discrimination. Bob Jones was engaged in racial discrimination. And the IRS said that, that the Civil Rights Act, among other things, established a national policy and took away its tax exempt status, I think rightly, not because the law, the Civil Rights Act, made it do so, but because the Civil Rights Act was a source of authority for the idea that uh, uh, that uh, that uh, in engaging in race discrimination was against national policy, uh, national policy. And we're concerned that sort of the same dynamic will will play out uh, here. Um, so it's not necessary. It creates a litigation and liability risk, and it does uh, raise the specter of the IRS revoking tax exempt status from organizations that hold to a traditional religious understanding of marriage. So um, there are, as Professor Esbeck pointed out, there are some uh, purported religious liberty protections in the act. And our view is that these uh, these protections are inadequate. Uh, the first one has to do with the uh, with the provision of the law that says, look, uh, if you're a certain kind of religious entity, you don't have to participate in the solemnization of a same sex wedding ceremony. Well, that's all well and good, but this is this is a, a, pro, a solution in search of a problem. I mean, there have obviously been multiple conflicts between LGBTQ interests and religious liberty and freedom of, of association. But efforts to force houses of worship to participate in same-sex wedding is simply not one of them. We've had same-sex marriage in at least one state since 2004, and our research has uncovered exactly zero cases in which some governmental authority tried to force a house of worship to participate in a same-sex marriage. I mean, it's like passing a restriction that says, you know what, government, you can't uh, tell Christian churches that they can exclude anyone from the from the Lord's table or from the Eucharist. Well, you know, that's I that's a good thing, I guess, but it's just not happening. The real problem in the in the conflict between LGBT interests and religious liberty is things like employment. It's things like places of public accommodation, like Jack Phillips and Baron L. Stutzman and, and 303 Creative, the case now in the Supreme Court. And uh, folks who were uh, uh, skeptical about the RFMA proposed an amendment that would have dealt with that problem. And the Congress, the majority of the Congress, uh, rejected it. The other thing about that provision, it says it starts with the phrase consistent with the First Amendment. Well, what does that mean? I think it's reasonable to worry that someone will read that to mean, well, you get the protection that the First Amendment gives you and nothing more. That's a possible reading. And it worries me that that phrase is in there as well. Um, uh, 
It also says, as Professor Esbeck pointed out, that the RFMA will not diminish existing protections of religious liberty. And my response to that is big deal. I mean, this only means that the bill is not as bad as, say, the Equality Act, which explicitly says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act will not be available as a defense to a case brought under the uh, Equality Act. So I, I'm not, you know, and obviously you can't, Congress can't eliminate protections under the Constitution because the, you know, the Congress is subject to the Constitution. They can't change it except by going through the uh, amendment process. The last thing is uh, the tax exempt status issue. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that the finding about, you know, reasonable and de decent people have different views on the role of sex in, in marriage, but nothing in the law forbids the IRS from taking away the tax exempt status of a nonprofit organization that it adheres to uh, traditional views on marriage. Finally, I've heard I've heard some say, well, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act will protect you. Uh, that's that that'll do the trick. You don't need to worry. Well, the first thing I would say is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is not an absolute protection. It's just a balancing test. It gives you the right to go into court and argue that this, this that there's a substantial burden has been imposed on you under the law. But then it's up to the judge to decide whether what the court, what the government is doing to you is the least restrictive means of achieving a compelling governmental interest. And you know what? Religious groups lose all the time on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So the existence of RIFRA, certainly it's helpful. And I'm glad it's there, but it's it's uh, not certainly not uh, dispositive. The other thing about RIFRA is uh, a lot of courts have said it's not available in cases between private parties. You can only invoke it as a defense when it is the government that is the federal government specifically is is coming after you. So that limits its reach. Uh, as well. And finally, uh, in a somewhat more recent development, the Obama, I'm sorry, the Biden administration has argued in the Ninth Circuit that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does not limit the application of laws passed after the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which would include the RFMA. So uh, that's kind of a disturbing development that would make the RFMA, the religious, well, the reference protection from it to be to be to be less. So uh, we don't think the bill was necessary. Uh, we think it does have serious conflicts with or at least potential conflicts with religious liberty and the religious liberty purported religious liberty protections that were added uh, towards the ends of the process. In our view, at least, are not sufficient to address our concerns. Right. Thank you very much, Greg. Really appreciate that uh, analysis of uh, the potential problems here with the RFMA. Um, we're, we're doing okay on time here. So gentlemen, if you would like, I'd like to give you each about three minutes to respond to the points that uh, your, your colleague has made, and then we'll move on to questions. So Professor Esbeck. Matt, you say like three minutes is generous. <laughs> uh, well, let me say, uh, e even before the RMA, uh, you can sue uh, state actors, actors acting under color of state law using the remedy of 42 USA 1983. And we didn't see an, an onslaught of uh, lawsuits there, uh, even though the, the risk uh, was was there. And uh, so I don't I don't see that 
this increases the risk uh, that the RMA uh, increases the, the risk whatsoever. Uh, concerning um, tax exempt status being in jeopardy, uh, section uh, 6A, uh, the rule of construction that uh, we should read the RMA as not putting in jeopardy uh, existing religious freedom, as well as section 7A should, uh, uh, and, and then the findings in section two, all of those should make more secure, I think, the, the 501c3 tax exempt status. Um, as to section 6b, which is, uh, I think, a modest uh, substantive provision uh, concerning celebration and solemnization, um, I think maybe if, if, if I had clients of this sort, I, I would be primarily concerned that municipalities with non-discrimination ordinances, non-discrimination in public accommodations uh, would, um, would uh, invoke those sorts of um, uh, civil rights uh, uh, thrusts, if you will. And I would see 6B being uh, useful as a defense in those kinds of municipal public accommodation uh, lawsuits. Uh, as to 6B, um, when it begins with uh, consistent with the First Amendment, I see that as in uh, telegraphing what the congressional th authority is, and it's invoking Section 5 of the 14th Amendment uh, and seeing that particular provision as implementing, uh, you know, essentially a church autonomy kind of uh, protection. So I don't think... Uh, it's complete surplusage to say consistent with the First Amendment. I think it's telegraphing where the congressional authority comes from. All right, thank you, Professor Espec. Uh, Mr. Baylor? Sure. Um, yeah, regarding the, the tax exempt status issue, like I said, I think the findings are, are, are somewhat helpful and it's good. It's a good thing for the Congress to be saying that differing views about the role of sex in marriage uh, are worthy of due respect. Uh, two concerns I have about that. It's the beliefs that are worthy of due respect, not the actions. And anything, uh, any effort by the IRS to strip a nonprofit of its tax exempt status because of its practices on marriage, the fact that they respect the views doesn't really restrain them. Um, the other thing it says about giving due respect, well, how much respect is due? There are many people and many government officials in this country who, who, who think that the respect due to uh, organizations that believe marriage is the union between one man and woman, that the respect due is virtually uh, nothing. Um, also, you know, the, the piece about we're not going to undermine existing protections it doesn't mean that the bill will not be interpreted, and it doesn't say the bill will not be interpreted, to impair the exercise of religion. It just says, hey, we're going to leave alone the protections that you already, uh, that, that you already uh, have. And, you know, as far as like the pre-existing availability of a Section 1983 case, I think there's some merit to that argument. But at the same time, when you 
create a new right, uh, a new right to have your same-sex marriage recognized, it, it almost necessarily kind of stimulates the demand for uh, lawsuits against organizations that um, that 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 don't uh, recognize or adhere to same-sex marriage. Uh, and, you know, the creation of a new tool is also an attractive thing. I mean, you got the shiny new object that you can use to, to go after folks on the, uh, on the other side. Um, and I, I think finally, you know, I said it before, but I'm going to say it again. This was a missed opportunity. Uh, this was a missed opportunity to provide real protection for religious liberty. We've got problems with non-discrimination laws in the employment, healthcare, public accommodation, and education context, those are real where the hot issues are. And this bill, which could have done something, at least we, it should have done something to deal with that issue, it, it failed to do so. Um, it's likely that the, we will see a new version of the, freedom, the First Amendment Defense Act, which would have helped the problem, be introduced in the 118th Congress. And I'm hopeful that that legislation will uh, get some traction. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. Really fascinated by this uh, discussion. Um, I, I want to go to some of the questions that we are uh, getting uh, from our, our Q&A feature here. We have one question that I think is uh, absolutely excellent here about the interaction between um, RIFRA and uh, the, the RMA. So the question is, would the Religious Freedom Restoration Act apply to, quote unquote, government burdens appearing in the form of federal court orders adjudicating claims uh, under the Respect for Marriage Act. In other words, are federal courts part of the government that is being restrained from burdening religion under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Gentlemen, what are your thoughts on that? Carly, uh, do you want to go ahead? No, <laughs> you take it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I, it, it's really the identity of the litigants, not really the fact that the court is involved adjudicating the dispute between the litigants. So I would like it to be the case that you could invoke RIFRA as a defense, no matter who is suing you. But some courts have not agreed with that position. And they've said, look, only if the federal government itself, you know, the EEOC, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor, only when they're suing you can you invoke the RIFRA defense. But if it's a private party invoking a federal government law like the RFMA, those courts would say you can't invoke RIFRA. And the fact that a federal judge is adjudicating that dispute does not change that answer. So I think that's my best shot at answering the question. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Greg. Professor Esbeck, any comments you want to uh, add to that? No, no. Oh. All right. Great. Well, let's move on to another question. This one kind of comes back to the tax exempt status um, issue that you guys raised earlier. Uh, the question is, can the Respect for Marriage Act create a national policy favoring same-sex marriage uh, in a way that overrides religious liberty, like you know the 1964 law did with race versus religious liberty in, in the Bob Jones case? When the Respect for Marriage Act itself provides both for uh, same-sex marriage and a variety of protections for religious liberty. So it sounds like the person asked this question thinks that, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily create a national policy, but, you know, it might split the difference. But, um, Professor Esbeck, do you have any comments on that? And then if so, Mr. Baylor? Uh, I'm going to defer to Greg, take the first shot at that. Okay. 
Sure. Um, you know, the determination of what is a national policy is uh, not a precise undertaking. Um, so, you know, the existence of religious liberty protections, so-called, either in RFMA or outside the RFMA, is not necessarily determinative as to what the IRS can and would do. Um, you know, they're they're just to illustrate in the, the Bob Jones context, there there were exemptions in state statutes and arguably in federal statutes out, out outlawing race discrimination. Uh, and nonetheless, right, uh, this, the IRS went ahead and said that that Bob Jones was not entitled to its uh, to tax exempt status. I mean, my argument is not that the RFMA itself compels the IRS to take away tax exempt status. I'm just saying it's part of the case that they would inevitably build. And that case would consist of other things. It would consist of non-discrimination laws that states and localities have passed. It would consist of non-discrimination regulations that the Biden and Obama regulations have issued. And, you know, there, there are exemptions in some of those. So it's because the IRS has so much discretion in this regard, I don't think that the the presence of so-called religious liberty protections in the RFMA uh, blocks them uh, from uh, saying that, look, you're, you don't, you're not entitled to tax exempt status because you're not charitable because you discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. All right, Professor Esbeck, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I have no follow-up with that, thanks. All right. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we have another question. Uh, will this, uh, will the Respect for Marriage Act have an impact on religious universities right to make employment decisions? And if you don't mind, I'll throw this one out to Greg first, because I know you, you deal with this uh, a lot at ADF in particular. So Greg, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I don't think that it does. Um, I mean, the big, you know, again, I've said before that the biggest problem is the litigation and liability risk under that provision of the RFMA that requires those acting under color of state law to recognize same-sex marriages. Well, are religious universities state actors? The answer is usually not. And in you know the overwhelming majority of circumstances, they just don't qualify. The mere receipt of, of money from the government does not make one a state uh, actor. The second issue would be, is an employment decision the refusal to recognize or uh, a a same sex marriage, and I think you could argue that uh, both ways. Um, you know, it says to give full faith and credit to a same sex marriage recognized or created in another in another state. I'm not entirely convinced, especially if your policy, your employment policy, is not about same sex marriage per se, but it's about uh, sexual behavior outside of a marriage traditionally understood. So you might be able to sort of distinguish those two and say, look, RFMA. But I think the state actor issue is what would protect a, a school in this circumstance. I would say, however, that an employment decision is the kind of thing that could get the IRS's attention and say, you know, what these folks are doing is against public policy and kind of initiate a process under which they might reconsider the tax exempt status. But I think for the most part, I think the answer is no. All right, Professor Espec? No, I have no follow up with that. Thanks. All right. Um, let me see. We have a few more uh, questions here. Um, 
there has been some talk in this discussion about maintaining the status quo. Section two, three mentions interracial and same sex couples. Have those two groups ever been placed next to each other in federal law? And if not, how does this phrase change the status quo for religious liberty moving forward? Either of you want to take a stab at that? Well, I, I will say that um, that race and sex appear together in, all, in tons of non-discrimination laws. I know that's not precisely the question, but you know, as Professor Esbeck said, uh, there is this idea that uh, differential treatment based on sexual orientation or gender identity is sort of the, the moral and should be the legal equivalent of race discrimination. Um, but you know, the mere appearance of them side by side. You know, might might support that argument, but you know, protected characteristics sit next to each other in a lot of uh, non-discrimination laws, and I, I would, I don't think you can draw the inference that they're all equivalent. You know, you have statutes that ban race discrimination, but but also ban you know appearance discrimination or political affiliation discrimination or veteran status discrimination. I think we would all say that race discrimination is just worse objectively than those kinds of discrimination. So I'm. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm following the, the the gist of the question. What's being got at? But I don't think it's particularly significant. Other than just just to reflect the reality of the United States in 2023, which is same-sex marriage is a reality um, and uh, is becoming fr uh, less controversial than it had been in years past. Absolutely. All right. Um, we have another question. Uh, does the Respect for Marriage Act hurt the case of a Christian uh, cake baker? Greg, you know, you touched on this briefly. Uh, you, you alluded to the, the Jack Phillips case. Uh, but gentlemen, if, if I can get your thoughts, because honestly, for me, too, this is my biggest concern about the law. When, when we zero in on, on the question of um, what the language means when it says operating under the color of state law. I think that that probably does bind government actors. The question is, you know, with, with private actors, uh, how far can that be extended? And I know it may be case specific, but but I'd be really interested to hear uh, both of you elaborate on that point. You know, is, is this law likely to hurt somebody like uh, Jack Phillips and, and Baramel Stussman or not? Carl, do you want to go ahead or you want me to? <laughs> go ahead, Greg. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, my answer is kind of similar to the last one. Um, it's, I would say it's even more rare that somebody in a private for-profit so-called secular business is a state actor. And so, I mean, you know, the other, on the other side, it just, it furthers an environment in which uh, individuals and organizations that aren't quote on board with the new understanding of marriage uh, are, are going to face more scrutiny. But I think if someone tried to sue Jack Phillips under the RFMA, that they would not succeed because there's there's no evidence that that Jack is a state actor. Now, that, that's not to say that there aren't lots and lots of private organizations that have been deemed to be state actors. Uh, state High School Athletic Association, bail bondsmen, state bar associations, cooperative extensions, Drug testing, drug testing companies, foundations, housing contracts. I'm reading off a list, obviously, but you know there are lots and lots of private organizations that are deemed to be state actors. So the fact that a you know the proprietor of a small business that has contact with uh, the wedding industry 
The fact that they're not state actors doesn't mean that our fears about state actors like foster adoption agencies being sued at least, and if not held liable under the statute, doesn't mean those concerns are uh, unwarranted. Professor Esbeck, any thoughts you want to add to that? Yeah, no follow-up. All right. Um, I have one question of my own. Uh, you know, I had a list of questions going through, but you guys answered um, uh, pretty much all of them. I, I have one outstanding question, though. Um, since the Respect for Marriage Act uh, it creates not only a private cause of action, but allows uh, the U.S. Attorney General to bring um, an action, um, what do you think the chances are of the Federal Justice Department um, getting involved in actions like these? And if so, do, do you think that the Federal Justice Department would be more likely to be fair, you know, consistent with the text of the statute or, um, you know, it's it, the, the Justice Department has come under a lot of criticism from those on the right for, for being um, uh, politically charged. So if the, if the Federal Justice Department had to get involved, how, how do you two see that going? Uh, Professor Espec, do you want to answer that first? Gosh, you've got a lot of imponderables there because, you know, it depends on who the attorney general is and uh, who his or her lieutenants are and and who they're, you know, taking their signals from. Um, the extent to which it's it's a it's a political matter as defined by the White House or simply a legal matter uh, to decide under the law, the land and the facts. And uh, so <laughs> I'm not quite sure that there's just so many loose ends there that it's hard to project. So the classic lawyer answer, it depends, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh, Greg, any thoughts on that? No, I, I I agree with Carl. It's really it's really hard to predict. Um, you know, there have been plenty of instances in which government agencies have behaved in a manner uh, that seems unfair. You know, we think of the IRS uh, and its uh, treatment of applications for nonprofit status by conservative Tea Party. You know, back in the day, and you know it happens. Uh, and it's because it's kind of a human nature in the way the system works, but. To make a more precise prediction uh, is, I think, I think it's really hard. But it's, it's at least those of us who are concerned about that phenomenon have to be uh, wary and watchful. Understood. Understood. All right, gentlemen. Well, we are uh, uh, we we got just a, a couple minutes left, so. Um, Let's uh, take this opportunity just to make some closing comments. If each of you want to take um, about a minute to make some concluding remarks, and we can uh, go ahead and wrap this up. So, Professor Esbeck, would you like to go first? Uh, <laughs> Boy, <clears throat> not sure where to go uh, by way of closing. There, there's obviously a lot of imponderables here. And um, some of them are legal and some of them are policy questions and policy questions are gonna be driven by whoever the administration is. And um, so, you know, I think, I think we're on some, um, some new frontiers here and, and um, it, it's hard to, to be real certain about of where we think we're headed. So um, stay tuned. <laughs> There's more to come. Greg? 
Yeah, so there, there's a, there's an emerging kind of meta narrative about the RFMA uh, that it reflects kind of a a, uh, a a kind of cooling of the temperatures in the conflict between LGBTQ interests and religious liberty and freedom of speech. And I don't think that's true. I really don't. And it goes back to my argument about the the significance of the alleged religious liberty protections. At the end of the day, the same-sex marriage side didn't really give up anything meaningful. Uh, I would say that the only concrete uh, 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 concession that was made was on this solemnization thing, that churches and houses of worship don't have to solemnize same-sex marriage. And as I noted before, that's not happening. Thankfully, I mean, lots of other things are happening, but that is just not happening. So I don't, I don't characterize that. I don't accept that. As a as a capitulation of any substance, and, you know. By the way, uh, if if a church got sued for refusing to solemnize a same sex marriage without the RFMA, they would clearly win under the Constitution. I mean, that's a clear cut violation of church autonomy doctrine. That's not a hard case. So I don't think this means oh the Congress is going to pass some grand compromise between religious liberty and and soji, or that the or that the attitudes about you know the legitimacy of religious organizations and others adhering to their traditional views of marriage has changed so i don't think there's cause for thinking that the the landscape has changed it's still very very polarized and people are dug in and i think that's the way it is right now all right well gentlemen thank you so much for being here and my thanks to all of you who jumped in and participated in this call this has been uh in, in, incredible and enlightening so professor Esbeck, mr bailey thank you very much uh kayla do you have anything to, to add let us wrap out i'll echo that thanks on behalf of the federal society and myself um both thanks to our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today and our to our audience for joining and participating uh, we welcome listener feedback at info at fed-soc.org and as always keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about other upcoming virtual events thank you all for joining us today we're adjourned thank you for listening to this episode of teleform a podcast of the federal society's practice groups for more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.